Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. This is a special episode of Flanagan's Ecologic. I'm joined by Hunter Lovins, who's the CEO and the founder of Natural Capital Solutions. Before that, she was in charge of the Rocky Mountain Institute when I was there as a, as a young man and early in my career. We met in 1986 in Snowmass, Colorado, and we've stayed in touch ever since. I'm greatly looking forward to having Hunter on the show today. Hunter, good good morning. Great to have you on the show today. How are you? Good morning, Ted. Wonderful to see you again. And you're you're in Longmont, Colorado. On I the am. Ra- on the ranch. You have a ranch there. I do. And and what have you got in terms of livestock? I t- I'm sure you have a number of horses. Entirely too many horses. Until very recently, cattle. We've just sent the last off to slaughter. We're fixing to get a whole lot of hamburger. Wow! Wow. And what else? Do you have other stuff besides horses and cattle, or is that it? Oh, way too many dogs, way too many cats, barn cats, house cats. But uh, no, in terms of livestock, horses and cattle, we do regenerative ranching. We're improving the soil through the action of the animals on the land. Right, right. Now, that kind of reminds me of Alan Savory. Uh, talking about how how ungulates really could be a very big part of the solution to sustainability. Grazing animals were the solution to the Earth's climate problem, what, 60 million years ago when the Earth was at uh, something like a thousand parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. By the time humans came around, we were at 280 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. Where'd the carbon go? There are all sorts of theories. Oh, the Himalayan uplift. Oh, volcanoes. It turns out it was grazing animals. There is a paper by a scientist named Greg Ritalik who walks through how something like 30 million years ago, there evolved these little grazing animals at the edges of the forests. Oh, and at a thousand parts per million, the earth was carpeted in forests, trees, which is to say planting more trees is not the solution to the climate crisis. But what happened was as these little animals grazed grass, when you eat grass, grass sloughs polysaccharides through its roots, sugars. That feeds the microbiological community in the soil, particularly the mycorrhizal fungi, which mineralizes the carbon. And where you have native prairie grasses with roots 10 feet deep, the carbon goes very deep, which is why when the pioneers came across the American Great Plains, They found 10 feet of thick black soil. That black is carbon. It got there because of the, by then, vast herds of grazing animals, dense packed because of predators. If you're uh, a bison and you're about to get eaten by a wolf, the safe place to be is in the middle of the herd. Everybody's trying to get into the middle. Mm. They eat everything in front of them, trample everything under them, fertilize everything behind them and move on and don't come back until the grass has regrown. And you're quite right. This was the insight of a then Rhodesian biologist named Alan Savory, who noticed where native herds in Africa were dense packed by predators. The land was in very good health. When the white settlers started ranching cattle in the traditional way of just turning them all loose and letting them selectively pick the tastiest bits and then taking them off the ground as soon as they had stopped gaining 
pounds per minute that the ranchers were interested in, the land was degrading. And in the United States, we have degraded mm -hmm. most of our farmland, either through industrial farming, plowing, breaking the native soil, which decarbonizes, denitrifies the soil, or through this kind of turn them loose grazing. Alan and others have shown that if you return to the way nature grazes animals, dense packed and always moving on, you can actually recarbonize the soil and you can do it very rapidly. The, uh, the earth decarbonized rather slowly. We now know how to put the biggest number I've heard is 20 tons of carbon per acre per year from the atmosphere back into the soil. This is the work of an amazing project in the Egyptian desert called Sekem, S-E-K-E-M, where they were working with 2,000 of some of the poorest Egyptian farmers, helping them convert from industrial farming to what they call biodynamic organic farming, regenerative farming in all but name, and sequestering carbon in the soil. So they've done a deal with some European companies that are looking for carbon offsets to pay these farmers. We help them put uh, their program together uh, with World Food Program, which had 43,000 farmers, and they're now helping convert these 43,000 farmers to organic biodynamic farming with the carbon payments cutting the cost to the farmers, enabling them to make more money so they can now charge less for their organic produce than people pay in whatever passes for a supermarket in Egypt for uh, industrial vegetables. And this will make the Egyptian agriculture sector transfer over to organic biodynamic farming and sequester enormous amounts of carbon. It's amazing. like, woohoo! Amazing. You, you do such a great job of weaving together all of these elements and uh, and then to end up with this sort of this notion of negative net marginal cost that uh, that I learned at Rocky Mountain Institute years ago. So how so is this is this how big a focus or the natural uh, capital solutions is this regenerative agriculture a big focus of your of your organization? It is, and work I am doing with many other people. So I've been doing a fair amount of work with World Food Program, a brilliant man there named Dr. Martin Frick, working also with a group called Now Partners, which has named me a managing partner, and working with people on the land on my ranch, I am part of a citizen science initiative in the Boulder Valley. There are 40 uh, some of us who every year measure the carbon in our soil, the mycorrhizal fungi in our soil, a whole lot of other yeah. soil measurements of the health of the land. Is it getting better? And year on year on year, I am one of the highest with really? carbon in the soil, quantity of mycorrhizal fungi because we don't break the land, we graze the land, and we do it in this holistic management as taught by Alan Savory and, and you're, Savory you're, you're, you're just you're proving the concept, but like you're as you discussed uh you know overseas there in Egypt, um this could be, you know, there there's ways of monetizing this. There's ways of, of actually 
helping people to go this way so that um, they can actually have greater profitability or they can they can go into organics without worrying about losing their shirt. So it's um, and this this concept is spreading rapidly globally. The, the World Food Program has been doing an amazing effort in, for example, the Sahel in Africa, where uh, Savory Institute is also working. Hmm. In many of these areas in Africa, the Horn of Africa, for example, there are today, as we speak, there are millions of people dying of starvation. WFP is now trying to keep alive a third of a billion people around the world who are starving. Yeah. And of course, things like the flooding in Pakistan, the now the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. WFP is feeding two out of every five Afghans because of the, the failed state there. And they point out that... Um, we used to think we could deal with world hunger. Ending hunger is like a second of the sustainable development goals. And as recently as 2015, the United Nations was pretty confident that they would achieve by 2030, zero hunger on the planet. Yeah, that was plan A. Then what they call the three C's, conflicts, COVID and climate change. And there is now a conflagration of hunger to the point that a third of a billion people are starving. There is no way at this point, business as usual, that we're going to meet the sustainable development goal of zero hunger by 2030. But WFP now recognizes there is a plan B, which is that if you work with smallholder farmers to, in, to practice regenerative agriculture, it enables them to make their soil fertile, to make their soil able to hold more water. Every 1% increase in soil organic matter is five to 10 tons of carbon sequestered per acre per year and 20,000 gallons of water holding capacity. So if you're in a desert like the, the Sahel, and you start practicing regenerative agriculture, now you can actually grow food for yourself. 80% of the people who are starving are smallholder farmers, many of them women. I mean, this is ironic that the people who grow the food are the ones who are starving. And it's because of this failed belief that the way you lift people out of poverty is have them grow commodity crops for export. Like, no, food sovereignty where you are using regenerative practices, and this restores ecosystems, livelihoods, the dignity of former aid recipients. It's, uh, you know, it's not a green utopia, but it's working. You can go to the World Food Program's website on Sahel and see photos of this happening. So they are now trying to spread this around the world as for example, working with Sekim in Egypt. You know, it, it, it just, it's fun to talk about food outside of my norm. I'm in the energy world almost all the time. But again, the solutions are right in front of us, right? They are, and the, the two are related. There yeah. is an energy food net water nexus 
used to be we got two plus calories of food for every one calorie of energy input into the food system. It now takes 10 calories of fossil energy into the food system to get one calorie of food out. That's just stupid. So there are people like Gabe Brown. Gabe's a North Dakota corn soybean farmer who was going broke in the uh, in the early 90s. And he said, I've got to cut my costs. People said, well, stop breaking the soil. Go to no-till. So he did. But he said, well, but uh, how, now I have to get nutrients into the soil, pay for fertilizers. And of course, with the Ukraine war, now the price of fertilizer has shot up. People said plant cover crops, deep-rooted, diverse cover crops. So he did. These pull nutrients out of the air, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and put it into the soil the same way it pulls carbon out of the air, puts it into the soil. The <clears throat> So Gabe did this. Now his fields are covered in cover crops. How am I going to drill seed my corn and soybeans? So he turned out his cows. Cows ate down the cover crops. He could drill seed his corn and soybeans which because he now has nutrients in the soil, he produces more commodity corn soybean per acre than before, vastly more than his neighbors with essentially zero cost. And he now has multiple crops. So Gabe is now profitable and spends most of his time traveling around helping other farmers learn how to do what he did. Where, where are where are we on sort of the J curve? If you use the population curve for for adoption of this, I mean, it's only at the beginning. It, only at it's the just beginning. Starting. I mean, we're very much just readopting common sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we are. Much as well, actually, the energy J curve is is way ahead. Yeah. And if you look at the work, say, of Tony Seba, Tony's a Stanford prof, Silicon Valley entrepreneur who says inevitably for fundamental economic reasons by 2030 the world will be 100% renewably powered four drivers fall in the cost of solar and credit suisse 2 months ago said by 2025 solar will be at a cent per kilowatt hour they said too cheap to meter which is what folk used to say about nuclear right until as the economist said it became too expensive to matter Fall in the cost of storage, batteries, and battery costs are falling rapidly, and battery technology is improving dramatically. Yeah. The uh, the graphene batteries that are about to come on are incredibly exciting. They use vastly less of the scarce materials that everybody's all exercised about than the electric car and the driverless car. These four together, Tony says, will drive a fundamental transformation in energy such that we don't, he says, you know, don't worry about the oil companies. Yes, they are rapacious bastards extracting more money from American homeowners than ever before, profiting wildly. And, you know, we say, oh, inflation, it was driven by all those handouts to people during COVID. No, it wasn't. It was driven by the uh, supply chain crisis, the corporate rapaciousness, and these in obscene profits now by the oil companies, big pharma, all the rest of these. 
the, the handing out of money to people was what drew drove the economic boom that we were starting to have until we ran into these supply chain constraints. You know, I can see I can see the, the solar, the storage, the EVs. But why is he saying that the driverless vehicle is going to be a, a major factor in getting to 100 percent renewable? Um, is that because the only well, because if you have a driverless fleet, it reduces by about tenfold what you pay to get what you want, which is from here to there. At a drop in tenfold, everybody's going to go there. EV driverless cars is the economic sweet spot. Yes, you can have gas powered autonomous vehicles, but it's not cost effective. So it's this drop in price. Again, no polar bears required. All of this is being driven by good economics. Right. I think you're saying that the, the driverless vehicles will be will change sort of the ownership patterns. We, we won't all individually have a car. We'll just be able to quickly get transport or mobility when we need it. Exactly. Right. And, and again, because it's EV and because the cheapest way to fuel the EVs is, as I do, solar panels. And I drive a LEAF, an antique LEAF. It's a 2011 LEAF, but I love it. It, it gets me where I need to go. And I fuel it off the solar panels at the ranch. So when the power goes out, well, my neighbors don't have power. I do. And call up the neighbors. Hey, you want to come charge your cell phone or put your meat in the fridge? Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is, as we've always said, the definition of homeland security. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what else um, you're doing with Natural Capital Solutions. I was really interested which you founded in 2002, I think. So that's Thereabouts. a couple decades, uh, about as long as you were at RMI. But um, I, I was really interested in this whole Colorado Carbon Fund. Is that this whole notion that you're getting people to donate money in Colorado? And then I know you're putting some of it towards methane uh, recovery projects, which is I'm just fascinated by. Is that, um, is that a big part of your work? Big part, no. But it is, if you will, a spinoff from natural capitalism. Young man who was uh, working with us was running that program for us. And he said, um, can I just take this and have it be a project of natural capitalism and I'll run it? Like, sure, fine. Guy named uh, Brandon Welch. So he's working with farmers and ranchers, help paying them in carbon credits to do regenerative agriculture, working with methane capture working with various energy efficiency projects, working with a variety of institutions around Colorado. This was a program that actually the Colorado governor created, oh, back in the aughts, and he rotated out of office and the energy office spun it off and nobody really wanted it. So it went to some NGO up in Oregon and they were gonna kill it. I mean, why are we running a Colorado program? And a gal who had been one of my interns, um, Kate Hamilton, called me up and said, would natural capitalism take on the Colorado Carbon Fund? And I said, yes, I'm, I'm not going to let it die. And I had no idea. What are we going to do with this thing? Brandon said, I'll run it. So it's merrily sitting there. You can buy a license plate, one of these vanity plates that says uh, clean air. 
and you pay a little bit extra, that little bit extra then goes to pay for the farmers or the methane capture or the energy efficiency or whatever project it is that Brandon thinks worthy of putting some money into. So it's Coloradans cleaning their own air through a Colorado program. Every state should do this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just more ways for people to plug in. Little ways, right? I mean, I'm a big believer in small actions that are, that add up, like buying that license plate. I mean, just almost a silly, a silly little thing, but in aggregate, it makes a huge, huge difference. All right, let's talk about, did you just come out with a new book? Well, a few years ago. This is a finer it future? It depends how you count it. Uh, there is a new book out called Earth for All that I had a big hand in writing, but I got annoyed with them over the agriculture section, so I said, take my name off it. It's still a good book as long as you ignore the agriculture section. The energy <laughs> section is very good. Um, but you're not going to find that under my name. I did write a book called A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life with three colleagues. And what it did was to say, almost 30 odd years ago, we wrote the book Natural Capitalism. That's 30 years old. What have we learned? Yeah. And in particular, it took the work of John Fullerton. John was for, what, 18 years at J.P. Morgan. He was a banker, uh, left as managing director and said there is something rotten in finance. So set about trying to rethink capitalism, finance, the economy, came out with a brilliant paper called Regenerative Capitalism. And that paper and that term, that the word regenerative has been around for a while. Uh, the Bible used it. Bucky Fuller used it a lot, said it was the organizing principle of the universe. But when John wrote that paper in 2012, and then he and I started working together, I started promoting that paper. And all of a sudden, the word regenerative is now popping up everywhere. And it's because of John's paper and help from a friend of his in uh, getting the word out about it. But uh, what John said is we really need to fundamentally rethink how we do the economy. So in the book, we walked through what's wrong with current economics, neoliberal economics, <laughs> short answer, everything. And then what's right about regenerative economics? And then how would you do it? So we look at implementing regenerative economics in energy, in buildings, in agriculture, in a whole array of sectors, and then ask the question, how would you govern such a system? Can you use regenerative economics to drive to greater equality and to deliver, as we said in the title, an economy in service to life? So, so I think it's the best of the books I've ever written. Really? No, it's so it's an evolution. I mean, let, describe what it describe what natural capitalism is. <laughs> is there is there a short version of that? Sure. Natural capitalism refers to the fact that uh, capitalism is currently practiced. It's just bad capitalism. Randy Hayes calls it cheater capitalism. We measure, manage, seek to enhance only two forms of capital: money and stuff. And there's nothing wrong with either money or stuff. We all have it like it, but it leaves out half of the forms of capital that you need that a good capitalist would use to enhance wealth and well-being. The other two forms being human capital 
which is not just a stock of exploitable workers, but it's intact community. It's the transmission through society of adaptive values and natural capital, which is more than just a resource pool of board feet of timber and ore bodies in the ground. It's the services that intact ecosystems give to our economy, which the ecological economists have shown repeatedly in study after study is actually worth more to the economy than the economy of money and stuff that we do count. So we're just being bad capitalists. And in the book, Natural Capitalism, back in 1999, we argued kind of going on guts that fully valuing all forms of capital would be better business. And we used the example of Ray Anderson at Interface, who had committed in around 1995 to become the first company of the next industrial revolution, making Interface a sustainable company. And he admitted, I have no earthly idea how to do this. So he called us up and we worked for a number of years with Ray, helping him figure it out. I was sitting with Ray in 2001 and he was actually annoyed. He said, this isn't why I did sustainability, but everything I'm doing to enhance the sustainability of interface is enhancing shareholder value. And I said, interesting. How do you, what do you define as shareholder value? So we sat down and he listed seven. We've since listed 13. We call this the integrated bottom line. If I can show you that behaving responsibly to people and planet cuts your costs, cuts your risks, makes you more insurable, makes you attractive to impact investors, enables you to attract and retain the best talent. Once you have that talent, enables you to make that talent more productive and more engaged and thus your company more profitable, better differentiates your products, builds brand equity, better enables you to manage your supply chain, cuts the cost of distrust. You add all of these elements together, a guy named Bob Willard, who was at IBM, ran a spreadsheet on this, said it's about uh, 36% enhanced profitability just from paying attention to these aspects of what we call a regenerative economy or natural capitalism. Yeah. How fantastic. Again, the solutions are, are there, right? We have all the solutions. We know what to do. It is frustrating that, you know, since the time the UN set forth the framework convention on climate change and has had now 27 conferences of parties, emissions have doubled the climate has warmed, that system isn't working. And so there, there are a group of us now working on launching a whole new initiative, which I can't talk about because it's still in stealth, but watch this space within the next month or so, we hope to launch. And I think it will be the answer to the climate crisis. Oh, that's exciting. Well, I will, we will watch that space. You know, we've just got a few more minutes and I, I, I need to ask you a few questions. Um, because your resume is outrageous. I mean, uh, I knew you grew up here in LA and Farley raised you here in LA and Pitzer and Loyola instrumental in the early days of tree people. I just served on the board for a number of years of tree people. So I love that, but who you had such an incredible career. You've been all over the world. Who, who, who are like, what was like the most interesting person that you have met? 
or the most couple, who are the couple of most just fascinating people that you met along the way? Well, I'm still meeting them. Not, not that it's, I know, not that it's over. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it ain't, it, it ain't, ain't over. It ain't to be over. Far from over. David Brower, founder David of Brower. Um, Friends yeah. of the Earth. He was the first executive director of Sierra Club. Uh, at a meeting at the EPA one time, Russ Train, the then head of EPA, said, Dave, be reasonable. Dave said, reasonable people have never accomplished anything. Dave saved the Grand Canyon by taking a full-page ad out in uh, the New York Times. Burek was going to dam the Grand Canyon, and they said, but now you can boat up to the edge and see it better. And Dave said, would you flood the Sistine Chapel to get a better look at the ceiling? <laughs> Lost Sierra Club their tax-exempt status, saved the Grand Canyon, uh, Sierra Club fired Dave, so he created Friends of the Earth. He was then borrowing for operating expenses. He said, if you have a positive bank balance, you haven't realized the urgency of the situation. Foe fired him, so he created Earth Island Institute. And every time I get fired, I, I you, know, you sort of set back on your heels and, you know, yeah, what would Dave do? Go create a new organization. So yeah. that's what I've done is go create new organizations. Very impressive. Okay, so what would you say is your biggest accomplishment to date? Well, it hasn't happened yet. As, as I say, if we can if we can pull off this uh, stealth project, that will be that'll be something worthy of a resume. Okay. Um, saving a thousand acres of ground from being turned into house lots. Um, my old outfit, uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, which where you were, was uh, preparing to uh, sell off a chunk of land called the Windstar, and a group of us stopped them from doing that. Previously, we had stopped uh, National Wildlife Federation from doing the same thing. And the land is still wild, still habitat for thousands of elk, yeah. still a critical migration route for the elk in the old Snowmass Valley in Colorado. I don't know if you realize this, but I still have my house there. And out of the top window, I'm looking, I can look right out onto that Windstar land. And uh, it's fantastic between that and the Otis Ranch being preserved, uh, open space. It's uh, kept it so special. So, so special. It is a very special piece of ground. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for uh, taking some time uh, today. And I'm. it's just delightful to be with you and delightful to hear you speak because you you've been somebody that's connected all of these cause and effects within ecological systems in in, in really clever ways uh, and with such optimism and direction for everybody so i i really appreciate it i really appreciate it and thank you and thanks for carrying the torch yeah likewise carry on talk to you soon yes sir adios that's it thanks for listening to flanagan's ecologic we'll see you next time